Hey, if you're not caught up or if you're just uh, visiting with us, let me tell you a couple things real quick. First of all, uh, if you don't know me, my name's Corey. Uh, I happen uh, to, to pastor here at Third Street Community Church amidst, honestly, one of the most amazing teams um, that has probably ever been assembled, to be completely real with you. Um, and also uh, a part of a staff team that will definitely take your staff team in a five-on-five basketball tournament. <laughs> definitely, definitely winning that one, catching dubs all day. Um, but I want to welcome you, and if you, don't, if you haven't caught the references, if you haven't caught the fact that our worship team was sitting down, the fact that I'm a little, you know, uh, uh, there's, a, there's just a, the tiniest bit more bass in my voice than there normally is, um, yeah, it gets, it gets more, you know, tingy than this. Um, this weekend was our annual youth retreat called Epic. And when I tell you that three years worth of pent up epicness was all taken out on this weekend, like, I don't, I don't think I'm exaggerating. There are a few people, it's still going on right now. Actually, like as we speak, your children are in all likelihood worshiping right now, right? And, and I'm going to get to more of that in a little bit. But, but there were a few of you that made the trip back last night or early this morning that were there with us. Uh, am I exaggerating that it was probably one of the most incredible experiences of all time? Am I exaggerating? No, I don't think so, right? It was absolutely incredible. And I don't know what your experience with, like, youth weekends has been. But for some reason, there's, like, a consistent theme that happens for me is that every time I spend a weekend away with our next generation— I find myself coming back to the city with my heart full, crazy encouraged for what God is doing in the next generation, and also with a really challenging word for the adults that stayed home. And so I hope, I hope, you stayed home because it wasn't for you. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not coming at you yet, right? <laughs> but I hope that you are able to go with me uh, this morning, if if you haven't if you haven't been with us, uh, we have for a very long time since the top of the year been in the series called Church Clothes. Am I by myself already? Church, can you say Church Clothes? Yeah. Okay. So we've been in this series called Church Clothes. This this week would mark week ten. That's wild. Look at your neighbor and say that's wild. There aren't even ten verses in the passage that we've been going through. Right? There aren't even ten verses. We've been taking our good old time, working our way through Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, which tells us that there is a war going on outside. And God very much is concerned with how we are equipped and what we are wearing in that war. But he's not concerned in terms of the name brands that we represent, but in terms of the spiritual armor that we boast in the heat of battle. And so for the last 10 weeks, look at your neighbor and say, 10 weeks. For the last 10 weeks, we have slowly been making our way through each piece of the armor. We've talked about the belt of truth. We've talked about the breastplate of righteousness that guards our front and our back. We've talked about the shoes of readiness. We've talked about the shield of faith, which is a really big piece of armor, not just this tiny rinky-dink kid's toy shield, but like a full like ground to, to top of my head shield. We've talked about the sword of spirit, which is, which is sharp enough to pierce the heart of the hardest of hearts. And then last week, 
we were blessed by Pastor Cynthia dropping in on us and talking to us and teaching us how to, in the midst of battle, continue to pray in the spirit. And you would think to yourself by now, I am fully equipped for battle. I feel very ready. I already started this year very aware of the war. Now I feel, Pastor, after nine whole weeks in the same passage, I feel very ready for spiritual battle. But as I was praying this week, and what was affirmed to me over the weekend was that I do think that there is just one more thing we need to get out of this series. There's just one more. I know you're armed. I know you're dangerous. I know you're ready, right? I know you are. Do you know that you are? Because I know that you are. God's been known that you are. But there is one more thing that I want to talk about, and that is something that not a single one of us in this place would dare leave the house without. No, I'm not talking about the devil devices that you're tempted to look at right now as I get long-winded. I'm talking about your keys. This morning, I want to talk to you about the keys to the kingdom. If you would, I would invite you to turn with me to, now we're going to go to Matthew. I was waiting for somebody to be like, Ephesians? No, trick dice. We're closing with a completely different passage. Ephe uh, man, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, chapter 16, indicated in your Bibles by the big number 16, and we're going to drop down to verse 13, which is indicated by the small number 13. So this is Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, and we're going to read through 19. The Gospel of Matthew reads this way. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Catch me now. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the word of our Savior Jesus, and it is true. There are two keys. There are two keys that you receive whenever you either come on staff at 3rd Street or you begin to lead programming at 3rd Street. There are two keys that you get, right? Rob, you got these two keys? You know exactly which ones I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Rev, you got these two keys. You know the two that I'm talking about. Right, right. 
there are two keys. I'm not even going to ask Connor because he's probably lost his. But there are two keys. Shout out to my guy in the back. Just trying to wake him up. There are two keys that you get. One, this big one, this giant one, is to the front door. And one, this little one with two A's marked on it, is a master key that will open any door inside the building. Now, one guy who will remain nameless, because I don't want anyone to think that I'm making fun of him, because it's more common than you realize, but one guy had wanted to know, Corey, how, how do I get to the other side of the building? And I was like, huh? He's like, yeah, man. Like, I got keys to the, to the gym door, and I got keys to the one room that I use. But I'm trying to get to the other side because there's another room that I want to use, and there's some other stuff that I want to do, but I don't have a key for that. And, and, and I don't know if you've been here, but during the week, most of the times, that gate in the hallway is up. So if you're on this side, you can't get to the other side. So, so, so how do I get to the other side? And I was like, with your keys. And he's like, no, 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 I think you misheard me. See, I got a key to the gym door, and I got a key to the one room that I use, but, like, those are the only keys that I have. I said, brother, that key to the gym door opens all the outside doors. Word? Yeah, bro. Just go to the other one. You, like, you didn't even try? I said, and what's that other key you got? He said, it opens the, 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 the concession area. I said, I said what, what's written on the key? He said, there's nothing written on the key. There's just an A and another A. I said, oh, it's a double A. He's like, sure. I was like, okay, that opens any door in the building. Did you even try? Like, I don't know about y'all, but I feel like my first logical step would be like, I wonder if one of my keys that I already have will open the door that I'm trying to get into in the same building that I'm already in. Anyone else with me on that one, or is that silly? Sometimes I feel like we get into a place in our faith where we feel like we're stuck on one side, where we feel like we have gotten used to the rooms that we've been in, but there's this whole other side that we're trying to get to, that there's somehow there's more to this. And actually, there's more to this, and we're trying to be more people into this, but we stay put because we're not quite sure how to access it. But don't you know that Jesus, according to Matthew chapter 16, has already given us the keys to get where we're trying to go? Jesus has already given us the keys that we need to build what he has called us to build. Jesus has already given us the keys to lock and unlock what we know is necessary for the kingdom to reign here on earth. As we look at the start of this passage, it says that Jesus came into the district with his disciples, a district called Caesarea Philippi. That sounds fun to say. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, Caesarea Philippi. That wasn't fun enough. Look at your other neighbor and say, Caesarea Philippi. I think that's pretty fun. Somebody should open a pizza shop and somebody should call it Caesarea Philippi. But... Caesarea Philippi 
was a city, was a, was a region of significant and serious idolatry. In other words, there were a whole lot of things that they thought were a lot more important than acknowledging God, right? There was a regional king. His name was Herod. You may have heard of him before. And in Caesarea Philippi, he built this immaculate temple. You hear temple and you think, God, oh, he, that's nice. A king, isn't that amazing that a political leader acknowledged God? Except I know that it's difficult for us to possibly think about, but this political leader actually just used the platform of God to get more people to, to like him. Because actually, this temple that he built was built in his own honor. As a matter of fact, a lot of people in the region didn't even acknowledge it as God's temple. They actually called it Herod's temple. That's idolatry. In Caesarea Philippi, at the city center, there was this giant rock that was, that was there where, where people would gather. And this rock served as a platform for performance. But it served as a platform that was really a platform for the hub of immorality in the midst of its street festivals. In Caesarea Philippi, it was named Caesarea in honor of Roman Emperor Augustus, whose image was embroidered onto the local currency. Now, I know that it's super unrelatable to us here in the Hall of Fame city. I know that there's no way we can possibly attain uh, uh, and contextualize investing tons of money and resources to build big buildings in honor of a shield that isn't God. Mm -mm. No, I know there's no way that we could contextualize a performance center that promotes lifestyles countercultural to the gospel of Jesus. I know that there's no way we could contextualize honoring important figures by molding their image into or onto something that people deem valuable, where people travel from far lands to come and pay a price to see. But the point that I want to make is that Caesarea Philippi was not an environment that was conducive to the spread of the kingdom of God. It was not very cohesive for you to be able to develop your holiness, let's say, right? Jewish moms and Jewish dads weren't sending their sons and daughters to Caesarea Philippi to learn more about the Lord, right? They, 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 weren't, they weren't sending their kids into that environment. And yet, Jesus brings his disciples through a place such as this. Jesus didn't stay near to Jerusalem, a capital city for, for Jews. Jesus didn't stay near to the synagogues, but he went into the streets of hard places. Furthermore, Jesus takes this opportunity in a very hard place to make one of his boldest claims we've seen up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. And that is that he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now imagine being in the center of Caesarea Philippi, land of idolatry, and Jesus says, on this rock, 
I will build my church. Imagine being in the streets of a really hard place that you followed only Jesus to because your parents told you not to go there. And yet Jesus says to you, here, I will build my church. Jesus walked into the heart of a hard area and declared that the gates of hell could not prevail against what he would build in this place. How many of you know for certain because of your own testimony that God wants to move in hard places? How many of you know, because as sure as you sit here is as sure as he brought you here, that God wants to move in hard places? I'm not just talking about a physical city center. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about your life. I'm talking about your circumstance. We all have personal circumstances that are hard and complicated. But do you know that Jesus wants to move in that personal circumstance that I just poked the bruise of? We all have darkness, and many of us are wrestling with addiction that no matter how hard you try to break it and how good you are at covering it up, it doesn't go away. But even in that, God wants to move in the midst of that hard place. We all are a part of relationships where one person or the other in the relationship is experiencing a hardness of heart. But do you remember that God wants to move in hard places? It does also pertain even to his modern church. It wasn't just a word for Peter. God wants his church to be in hard areas, right? Jesus himself says it this way. He says, I didn't come for those who believe that they're well, but those who know that they're broken. See, the beautiful thing about the God that we serve is that he doesn't buy into the world's narratives of a particular area. That while before checking out particular neighborhoods or particular houses or particular churches, we Googled statistics about an area. God isn't guided by Google statistics on an area. God isn't guided by what magazines publish or say about a city or a school district or a neighborhood. God doesn't buy into world's narratives of a place, but sees it for what it actually is, a populated area of his people who desperately need hope. And God wants to move in hard places. What's the hard place in your own life, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, where you need to see God move? In the midst of a hard place, Jesus asks kind of a hard question. He looks at his disciples and he says, who, does, who do people say? Like, let's contextualize. What do you see on Twitter? What does Twitter say? Who does Twitter say the Son of Man is? Some on Twitter say that their political leader is the Son of Man. Some on Twitter 
say that their great social leader is the son of man. Some on Twitter says that their famous, their favorite athlete is the son of man. The disciples gave the world's narratives. Some say the son of man is this person. Some say the son of man is that person. Some answers were this. Some answers were that. But they were all fueled by what the population says. I don't know if you've come across this yet in your experience in life, but the world tends to have a bad reputation for God. The world tends to have smeared the name of Jesus. I don't know if you've experienced that. At Epic this past weekend, our speaker, our speaker Audra, uh, talked to the kids about this bad rep narrative. She had this really awkward moment where she was like, where she was like, how many of you have heard of a bad rep narrative, right? And inevitably, a couple kids were like, me, me. And she's like, well, that's interesting because I made it up, which is always really awkward. But she talked about this bad rep narrative where God came in all of his goodness, right? God created out of all of his goodness, but in came a liar, in came an accuser, in came a deceiver to take half-truths and smear the name of God. So that, not that he would necessarily be able to defeat God that way, but that he would be able to persuade us in a direction that was away from God. And in many instances, in scripture and in our own lives, Satan is very successful at that. And then Jesus flips the question and he says, but who do you say that I am? He says, if that's what the people say, if that's who the people say the son of man is, who the Messiah is, who the Savior is, who do you say that I am? And it says, Peter was the first to speak up. He says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God, right? Peter recognizes. Peter, for once, is trying to be ahead of the trap, right? Peter's like, I, 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 I got this one. Hey, listen, you're the Christ. You're the, you're the son of man, Jesus. Hey, yo, hey, I got this one. You, you are the Savior. You, you are the Messiah, right? And Jesus says, well done, he calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. In other words, he called him by his government name. He said, Simon, son of John. Called him by his worldly name. And he says that you, there's no way that you could have known this. This had to be revealed to you. In other words, your answer is beyond what the world would say. Your answer is spiritual. You have recognized in your heart that God has revealed something to you and you gave not a physical response, not a worldly response, but a spiritual response. And he says, for this, you are given a new identity. He flips the script. He says, Simon Barjona, Simon government name. That is a spiritual response. I don't see you any longer as Simon. He says, you are Peter. Because, folks, where there is a spiritual response, there is an identity change, right? Where there is a spiritual response, there is an identity change. Scripture says that when you have received Christ, you are a new creation. 
You're brand new. You're not the same anymore. Your bad rep narrative can be your bad rep narrative, and you don't care anymore because you're not that person anymore. You're brand new, right? And name changes mean something in the Bible, right? When Abram, when God was ready to make Abram the father of many nations, even though his wife was barren, he changed his name from Abram to Abraham. When God was ready to bless Jacob, he changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And that was a blessing. Jesus is looking at Peter in this moment, and he's saying that all your life you have been summoned, Simon, son of Jonah, son of John. And that comes with a certain connotation and expectation, right? All your life you've been called Simon, son of John, and people in this, these streets, they know what that means. They know that that means you're a fisherman. They know that that means that you've messed up in some ways. They, they, they remember your past. They, what, what, what you wake up and you go do is what people tie you to in their minds. You are your sinful actions in the world's minds. And you, Simon, have actually said it yourself elsewhere. You said, Simon, I'm Simon. I'm a sinful man, Jesus. Don't even come near me. I'm too sinful for you to even be near me. But Jesus says to Simon, when I look at you, I don't see a sinful man. I know that that's what they told you. I know that when you look in the mirror, a lot of the mornings you wake up and you see who the world sees. But Jesus says, when I look at you, I see Peter, which means rock. I see hard. I see solid. I see a foundation. I see a pillar. I see something with which I can build something immaculate. The world says you're this, but I say that you're this. One of the things that I love the most about Epic is that it's not your average church camp. I don't know if you grew up going to church camp. And I actually have no, like, you know, like, Barna evidence statistically to, like, back up what I'm about to say, right? So just, you know, like, put that asterisk in there. But by my estimation, I would say that average attendance of a church camp is about 80% church folk, Honestly, that might be giving, me, giving you know, us a little bit too much credit. It's probably more like 90 95% church folk. And then a few of us brought our friends who weren't saved, right? What I love so much about Epic is that because of the nature of the ministries involved, it's probably more like 25% church kids. And I'm not saying the church kids are already fine and we don't need to worry about them. I'm not saying none of that. I, I know your kids are bad. I know, I know, I know. I know. Trust me, I've seen him this weekend. I know. I know. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that means that 75% of the camp has never met Jesus before in their life. Wow. And on the first night when they first get there, they're more or less, like they're taken to the room, they get to drop their stuff off, but they're more or less thrown directly into the fire and they go right into session. And for the majority of our camp, that's the first time they've ever seen a worship service before. That's the first time they've ever heard songs praising the name of Jesus, right? Not just invoking it culturally. And so naturally in the first session, your expectations are high. Your energy is high as a leader. 
And then you see your kids that have never engaged in worship before goofing off, and you get mad. And listen, it's okay. KT handled it. It's all good now, right? For the kids that should have known better, I promise you they were let know that they should have known better, right? But the reminder from the Spirit for us in that moment is that for a lot of these kids, they don't know better, right? For a lot of our kids, like, they ain't never, like, I mean, look around. You see them now? Like, like they're not here worshiping with us a lot of times, right? And so what did you expect? But what I, what I love so much about that is that at Epic, there's this atmosphere. It's an island of health, if you will, um, where, where they're surrounded in things where they're going to have fun, but there is a spiritual atmosphere that's provided for them where there's freedom for, their to, for them to engage probably for the very first time with the Holy Spirit. And in session one, while we saw a whole lot of kids not really knowing how the heck to engage, after some more interactions on the next morning, session two, those same kids were clapping. A few of them actually non-sarcastically had their hands lifted in the air. I don't even see some of y'all get to that point. And then session three, last night, I watched as nearly the entire camp fell to their knees, tears in their eyes, arms lifted high, giving to Christ the crap that they came out here with from their communities, from their school, from their homes, and praising the name of Jesus. If you would have not shown up on Friday night and you had only shown up on Saturday night, you would have no idea that it's the same kids. The point in what I'm trying to say is that when there is a spiritual response, when you open yourself up to what God is revealing to you, your identity, who you are, is unrecognizable to the rest of the world because you are a new creation. Somebody in here needs to know that God doesn't see you how the rest of the world sees you. God doesn't see you the way that your boss sees you. God doesn't see you the way that your, that your dorm mates see you. God doesn't see you the way that the party crew sees you, right? God doesn't see you how the bartender sees you. God sees you for who you are able to become, for who he created you to be. God doesn't see you for your job title. God doesn't see you for the condition of your family. God doesn't see you for your relationship status. God sees you as a strong building block with which he will build something so great that we can't even grasp it. When God sends his church into a hard area, he doesn't see that area for its bad narrative. He doesn't see the city for its negative statistics. He sees the kingdom expression represented, and he's faithful to help it take over. When there is a spiritual response, there is an identity shift. But the question is, will you actually live into it? 
Like, can you drop the negative narratives? God isn't holding on to. You're the only one who still does. Will you drop the way that you talk about places? Will you drop the way that you talk about other people? Here we go. Please, in the name of Jesus, will you drop the way you talk about yourself? And and will you try to respond to the spiritual? Live into the new identity that God is building in you and building in our city. Now, I just, I acknowledge I, you know, I might have stepped on a few toes. And I'm not, I'm not really sorry. But I haven't told you about the keys yet. Jesus says, I will give you the keys. He goes on to say, whatever you bind will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. Can I just skip a whole lot of study and jump straight to the contextualization? He's saying whatever you lock up will be locked up. Whatever you allow will be allowed. In other words, Jesus is passing on the authority to the disciples that he has been exercising in front of him this whole time. Right, He's giving them the authority to rule on behalf of God. He's giving them the authority to cast out the darkness. He's giving them the authority to call out the legalists. He's giving them the authority to heal the sick. He's giving them the authority to look at a broken, taken over, fallen world and declare victory. You have the power to lock up what is sinful. You have that. You also have the power to allow redemption of what is broken. But you also, you also have the power to stop it all as well, to not allow it to move forward. My guy Tony Evans uses the analogy of referees on a football field. He says the referees aren't, aren't there to be a part of the conflict. I know they're a part of your conflict, but they're not meant to be a part of the conflict, right? There are two teams that are opposing one another, but the officials are there. They're appointed with authority to rule on behalf of a kingdom that's unseen on the field. But sometimes, not all the time, like Twitter will lead you to believe, but sometimes... There's a little bit of human influence in the officials, right? Sometimes the officials, they will, they will bind something that we don't believe should have been bound. Or they will allow something that we don't believe should have been allowed. Church, when you receive the keys to the kingdom... You have been given the power to officiate the world around you. Did you know that? Did you know that? You actually have the power to officiate the world that you complain so much about. Can I make it a little bit more uh, explicit? Because some of us want to throw a penalty flag on the way that school handles our kids, but we don't want to lock up the demons that we expose them to in our house. Some of us, some of us want to throw a penalty flag on others who, com- who commit crimes allegedly, but we want to allow the forgiveness of our own sins. 
Some of us want to throw a penalty flag on the way our church uses its facilities, but don't want to unlock the doors to our living rooms or our kitchens. See, we've got, this, we've got this secret sin that's not all that secret. We want to have so much say and influence in the way the world should be, but we don't realize that we are the ones that have allowed it to get this way. We want to be mad at God for what he allows on earth, but we don't want to use the giftings he's given to us to redeem it. We want to be mad at God for what he allowed, and he's, I have to believe, sitting there like, did I not put the keys in your hands? Had I not taken you through some type of training prior to this that prepared you for this very moment? Have I not showed you that my goodness overrules the darkness of this world and that you are well-equipped, equ- well well-armored, well-prepared to rule on behalf of me here until I call you home and your job is done? Have I not made that plain to you? I want to be a part of a church that lives into the promises made in this passage. The main promise. The one that says the gates of hell can't prevail against it. Church, we defeat the gates of hell by more than just acknowledging the armor. We defeat the gates of hell by believing that God is ready and able to move in a hard place. By calling out and living into the God-given identity, not the world-narrated identity. And we defeat the gates of hell by accepting the responsibility of locking and unlocking what is allowed in our presence. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we get to be a part of your redemption work. God, we thank you that through the ministry of Jesus, And through the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, we have been prepared for such a time as this. And God, we are sorry for the ways that we have not appropriately exercised the use of the keys that you have given us. But Lord, I pray that your spirit will remind us to use them as we leave this place. That your spirit will remind us of our third person perspective, our kingdom perspective that grants us authority by Jesus' name to rule in this world, to officiate, to facilitate, to lock up what is dark and to allow only what is good. And God, I pray that for those of us who question our status with you, for those of us who feel like maybe we've been given the kids' toy keys 
but not the real thing. Lord, I pray that your spirit will show us the way that we've bought into the world's narratives about who we are and not into who Jesus came to tell us we are, who you have created us to be, who by your spirit we will become. God, I pray that you would lead us into your presence and that our posture in this world will mark out a path worth others following, guiding them as well into your presence. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. All who believe say, what's up?